Welcome to the Boggs Cast, where faculty and staff at the Boggs Center on Developmental Disabilities explore best practice, showcase success stories, and help listeners envision possibilities for innovation through interviews with state and national experts. Part of Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, the Boggs Center is New Jersey's University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities and New Jersey's Leadership Education in Neurodevelopmental Disabilities Program. I'm Carrie Caulfield, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Director of Pre-Service Training at the Boggs Center. I'm also the Training Director of the New Jersey LEND Program. I'm joined today by Stephanie Michael, 2020-2021 NJ LEND Social Work Fellow, who will co-host today's episode with me. Stephanie, you wanna say hello and introduce yourself? Hi, Carrie. Um, my name is Stephanie Michael, and as you said, I am a 2021 fellow um, of NJ Lend. Super excited um, to have had the opportunity to participate in that program. Um, I am a Master of Social Work student at Rutgers, and I'm very excited to be co-presenting and co-interviewing uh, Dr. Whitmer with you. Thank you. Um, and in this episode, as Stephanie said, we'll be talking about mental health needs among individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities with Dr. Andrea Whitwer. Dr. Whitwer is an associate professor in the departments of psychiatry and behavioral health and psychology at The Ohio State University, the director of training and the associate director of the LEND at the Nysonger Center. Dr. Whitwer has extensive experience providing interdisciplinary clinical services and conducting research in the field of intellectual and developmental disability. Dr. Whitwer has published research related to co-occurring emotional, behavioral, and psychiatric disorders in those with autism spectrum disorder and other developmental disabilities, as well as assessment of autism spectrum disorders. She is currently an investigator on the Nysonger Center Rehabilitation and Research Training Center on Health and Function for People with Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities. The goal of her project is to identify promising practices in the treatment of psychiatric disorders in individuals with intellectual disability and to provide a research framework for future research in this area. And we are so fortunate and excited to have Dr. Whitwer with us today. So Dr. Whitwer, if you wanna say hello. Hello, I'm so excited to be with you guys today. Oh, so, so exciting for us too. Um, and in May, uh, we had the, the great privilege and pleasure of um, hearing a presentation from you at the Bog Center's Developmental Disabilities Lecture Series. Um, and I wonder as a way to, to kind of kick off our, our time together, if you wanna highlight some of the most important um, takeaways from your presentation at that DDLS session. Yeah, sure. Um, so at that session, we talked about basically how to support the mental health needs of adults and individuals with intellectual disability, um, because we know that unfortunately, individuals with intellectual and, dis and developmental disabilities um, have a lot of life experiences that lead them to be at increased risk for mental health and psychiatric diagnoses. And so it's really important for everyone, parents, providers, guardians, clinicians, to really understand that. Um, and then also to understand that there are treatments available. So in May, we talked about how there have been some research studies that have identified 
things like cognitive behavior therapy and mindfulness that can be very effective in helping to treat those psychiatric symptoms in adults with intellectual disability. Um, and then we spent a lot of time talking about how dealing with those mental health concerns isn't just about the individual and the one clinician that's um, working with them, but really about the whole team and how it's really important to have the whole team on the same page when it comes to identifying if there are concerns, recognizing them, communicating with clinicians and being part of that team. So we spend some time talking about how sometimes assessing for psychiatric diagnoses in adults with ID can be challenging. There are different, um, different things that can look like psychiatric diagnoses but are really physical health problems. There can be things related to life experiences that are a part of the process. Um, and we also talked about how trauma can play a part in that. And so really the goal at the end of that was hopefully to leave all of the folks understanding that everybody can help to promote positive mental health, to hopefully maybe prevent the impact of some of these negative life events on individuals, to prevent the occurrence of a mental health concern, or how to help the individual and empower them to get the help they need to treat any type of psychiatric diagnosis that they would have. Yeah, and and it was it was a great great session. It really was. Yeah. So we know that one of the major issues around services, including healthcare for people with disabilities, is that it is super siloed. Um, while there are recognized are recognized needs for professionals and systems to work together, the reality does not often reflect this type of practice. Um, what do you think underlies uh, or supports interdisciplinary care? Um, you know, what type of structures or processes uh, do you think need to be put in place to facilitate interdisciplinary care? Yeah, I think that's that's a great question, and I think it that's part of maybe the reason that things are siloed is the needs for the interdisciplinary care. So I think first it's helpful to take that step back and think about why are things so siloed, right? Because it would make sense if we're dealing with someone who has mental health concerns and intellectual de developmental disabilities that the, the different providers could work together. Mm -hmm. But what you often see is just like, even just like on a basic state and federal level that the different agencies that support people with ID mm -hmm. are separate from those that support people with mental health. It's like, mm -hmm. there's not this understanding that both can occur, right. um, which I get, you know, policy, they're very black and white, that's, they have to set up agencies. But because of that, you end up with, you know, forcing people to maybe specialize into one area or another. And it really doesn't always encourage that interdisciplinary model. I mean, I think mm -hmm. you'll see some, you see in some states and some models where folks have found ways around this. So whether it be having, so in Ohio, we had a program um, and still have a program for children and it's called Kids in Different Systems. I think it has a, a fancier name now, but basically this idea that when you've got a child that's in one or more system, you need to have a coordinator that can help to pull mm -hmm. all of these different people together. Right, and right. I think that's that piece. And so when you've got a kid, that's one thing. And often that child maybe has also a parent that can help work with the coordinator. When it gets into adulthood, it becomes a lot more challenging when you have a parent that maybe acted as that coordinator that is either tired or stressed or unfortunately has passed away or has their own health things to deal with. You don't have that like 
that coordinator. Right. You know, you think to kind of clinic. connect them all together. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You, you need somebody to kind of pull everybody together because it takes a lot of work. Right. And that communication piece. Um, yeah. And I think the other part of that is when we think about it is that the funding structures are not set up for that either. Right. So insurance doesn't that cord care coordination, very few places pay for that. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so having that in team meetings and all of these things that are so important for that interdisciplinary care, just don't, if you're trying to work in a place where you don't have a lot of extra grant funding and support, it's, it's near impossible to be mm -hmm. able to, to do that. Mm -hmm. So can I just follow up a follow-up question on that? So yeah. do you think that um, it's important to advocate do you think advocacy um can play a role in you know um changing policy so that care coordination becomes more of a priority and um you know it's it's made clearer to policymakers that there needs to be someone in the middle to kind of connect all of these systems and in centers and organizations do you think advocacy could play a role there yeah, I think that's a great point. And yeah, I think so. Being able to tell those personal stories that would help with that and then having data to quantify what what what's the bang for the buck if people will fund these, you know, care coordination, what does that save in the long run and some of those mm -hmm. pieces. But I, I think you're totally right, Stephanie. Mm -hmm. The more that different and I think hearing from different voices, right? So hearing not only from clinicians, but hearing from family members and also individuals themselves. I mean, I think yes. advocacy and empowering people with ID to feel comfortable to advocate not only for themselves and their disability, but for the services they need related to mental health is, mm -hmm. is something that would really speak to policymakers and is something we can all kind of help to do and to support. Yeah. You know, one of the other um, issues I think that contributes to, or maybe is a product of how siloed things are, is the, the difference in approach that different systems take to addressing issues without a, a full understanding of how that approach might need to look different when you have a person who has a disability. So for instance, you know, a, a typical mental health supports approach where you really intervene in a time of crisis, you kind of wrap around services and supports, somebody, um, you know, the, the condition stabilizes and then you kind of withdraw supports may not always work um, when you have someone with a disability who likely is gonna need sort of longer term supports or, or a different kind of approach altogether. Um, and I, I don't, you know, I think that might, I don't know if it's a symptom of or if it contributes to some of the, the siloedness of services. Yeah, yeah, I, that's an interesting, I, it's probably both, right? So it, it just further, it gets further reinforced by the silo but I also think you got, and so this kind of could almost like take us into the next thing where we think about training and mental health providers and the type of training that people get. So if you think about folks who are in the mental health field, 
by and large, they maybe have what, like an hour lecture on disability, if you're lucky, um, and some of those pieces. And so they come from this framework where they haven't really been taught to think about things and what individuals and families related to disability experience, they think of that mental health piece. And then you got the DD world and some of them, they don't have that mental health background. And so being able to kind of figure out those pieces together. And so I think there's that challenge where you might have the DD folks that kind of see, you know, what the DD needs are, but maybe can't necessarily speak in the same language as the mental health folks. And so then it, yet again, you just get those further silos, right? Right. And I, and I think in, in some of what we heard you talk about in your, your DDLS presentation, you talked about um, mental health providers not really feeling prepared. Um, and so is it just lack of education and exposure that underlies that? And you know, what, what can we do to help, help address this? Yeah, yeah, you know, and there's been some some studies that have been done where they ask providers and by and large mental health providers will say that they don't feel like they've received adequate training um, to work with individuals with intellectual de developmental disabilities. They don't feel like they have the supports at their workplace to be able to do that. And so whether it's having an extra social worker or other pieces, or even like we talked about funding, and the insurance and the different funding mechanisms to be able to do what they feel like they need to do. Right. And so you hear that. Now I was looking back um, and most of that work's been done in other countries that have more socialized medicine um, perspectives. So it would be really interesting to look at those in, um, in the US. We've talked with providers, but a lot of what the work that we've done is with the providers that are working with folks with ID. So we've heard what works, what the barriers are, but we've not heard, and I think that's the next step is to hear from voices, from folks to find out from them, like what are those specific things that on a personal level they're mm -hmm. experiencing as those barriers. Right. Right. And, you know, I think I, I can see part of what contributes to not feeling as prepared is just the, the, the real range uh, and diversity um, among individuals who have disabilities. Um, and that, you know, when you're talking about someone who might not be able to express themselves verbally, how do you really support someone who still may have very legitimate um, mental health needs, um, but, but won't respond to maybe a cognitive behavioral therapy approach? Right, yeah, and I think it's, I agree. I think that I think that is probably a lot of where you get that reluctance, even from therapists that are maybe a bit more open to treating different populations. And so I think it's one it's there is you're right. It's definitely more challenging with folks who have more limited verbal skills. But I sometimes I fear there's this tendency then of clinicians to just say, I don't work with anybody with an intellectual disability and don't realize right. that they have the skill, you know, if I always say, if you're a really good therapist, you probably adapt your therapy right. based on your client. Right. And a and client with mild ID, you, you could do that. That's a great point. And that, I think um, that kind of leads into another question about stigma 
you know, it could be the stigma around disabilities um, that is, you know, I don't, I don't know, discouraging um, therapists and mental health providers and, you know, pediatricians and whatnot to, um, to work with individuals with disabilities um, because of this stigma. Um, you know, we know that uh, stigma is experienced from bias um, because of disabilities. Um, we know that there are known biases related to accessing mental health supports in general. Um, has there been any research or work done exploring whether people with disabilities experience bias or ascribe to a bias in particular about accessing mental health supports? Sort of like a double stigma. Are you aware of any of that? Any yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Cause you know, I know we know with intersectionality with IDD and other aspects that one plus one isn't two, you know, sometimes it's three or four, it's magnified more. Um, there's been, you know, there's been a lot of studies that have been looking just at ID and stigma, but I went, I was digging again, looking, and there's not really anything that looks specifically at that mental health piece and how that plays in, but they're definitely, we know, and I think what you see, at least I know what I've seen clinically and even some of the literature on, we know that having a co-occurring mental health diagnosis leads to more exclusion, as I talked about in May. And you'll see individuals that have any type of psychiatric diagnosis being turned away from work programs, being turned away from social groups and other pieces because of a concern about, you know, aggressive behavior. I think that's mm -hmm. the other piece that you'll sometimes see is that people just automatically think that mental health equals aggression in folks with ID. Um, which is not the case, right? And so, but you see some of those biases playing out. I think it also sometimes goes the other way. And there's something, and I talked about it in May called diagnostic overshadowing. And it's this whole idea that um, someone will attribute everything that an individual is experiencing just to their intellectual disability. Wow. So the person starts hitting their head and instead of first looking, do they have an ear infection or a toothache right. or do they have headaches or are they depressed and angry? And that's why they're doing it. They just say, well, that's because they have an intellectual disability. Mm. Well, they, they're worried all the time because they have an intellectual disability, right? And so there's sometimes this bias the other way where it's like not recognizing those signs and not mm. and then maybe recognizing them, but not thinking that someone would benefit from treatment. And so that can cause those challenges too. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I want to, I just want to follow up on, on what you just said about recognizing that someone would benefit from treatment. And, and I think it, you know, as a person, um, I, I struggle to understand sort of how do you know when seeking mental health supports would be an appropriate step for you. And so for someone with a disability or for those of us who support or live with or love someone with a disability, are there signs or, or what should we be, what should be the indicators that, that maybe seeking some, some therapy or some mental health support would be the right next step? Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, and it is hard. And I always say, like, so when I'm when I'm looking at diagnosing or anything of that sort, I always look at changes from baseline. 
So if something changes and you're seeing someone who's having a loss of interest or a change in behavior or um, having difficulty actually completing things that they used to complete, or, or just in general, maybe they've always had these issues, but you're seeing things are getting in the way. So if someone is so anxious that they don't want to go out, they you know maybe didn't want to go to school and now they don't want to go to work because of anxiety, is when you really start to see either those changes from baseline or things that are really interfering with their functioning in daily life that just could benefit from some help. And I think the other piece of that too is to you know start with the family physician and work at in May, you know, I shared, I love it. There's this really cool um, graphic that I pulled from um, Bradley and colleagues where they talk about kind of what's the process to look at with someone when we try to see, is it, do we get to a psychiatric diagnosis? And I think that's maybe a nice thing too for families to realize is you're seeing a change in your family member or a provider seeing a change going in. It's kind of, they're not gonna jump to right away. Oh, clearly it's depression, clearly it's anxiety. So you, I think sometimes there's that worry right. that they're gonna like get labeled that way, but it's really kind of looking at health and environment lived experiences mm -hmm. and then kind of looking through all those things and then getting to that, that is there an underlying psychiatric diagnosis that might be part of the picture too. Right. Yeah. So I'd like to um, talk a little bit about the pandemic and, um, you know, the impact of uh, the pandemic on mental health of adults with intellectual um, and developmental disabilities developmental disabilities. Can you, can you talk about any supports related to the COVID pandemic? Yeah, yeah, you know, COVID's been hard on everyone, but we know that it has been disproportionately impacting individuals with IG. This past year, we were recognizing some of those challenges and we have, within our LEND program, we have um, Christine Brown, who's a fabulous self-advocate um, faculty member that we work with, and she was working with a lot of different agencies who were asking, what's, what are the experiences with adults with ID? What's going on? And so we worked together with her and with one of our um, experts here in Universal Design to pull together a survey to really ask adults with ID what's going on right now. Um, and what we heard from them is that about 40% of them reported increases in mental health and psychiatric symptoms as a part of COVID. Mm -hmm. So it's really, really impacting them just as others. Um, in addition, about 15% of them said they lost some of their services. Mm -hmm. So whether it be, and that's their perspective. So whether they might have on paper still had those services, but they didn't feel as though they were getting those services. Um, also things related to work and some of the jobs that our folks with ID have, whether because of their own immune um, sensitivities or vulnerabilities mm -hmm. um, had to stop working or the nature of their jobs were not something they could do remotely. So you had losses of employment and all of those pieces, which then put you at further risk for more mental health concerns. Right. And so I think from a mental health perspective, it's taken a toll. And then we just know just COVID in general, right? And the impact that it's had on both the adults 
and also their care providers too. And so I think that's the other piece is that they're, and something for us all to really recognize is, is maybe the trauma that's not only a part of their own experience with COVID, but losing providers or other pieces or family members. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of need. I know we've talked with folks too clinically who are very happy. Those folks that have that social anxiety or have that history of bullying and other pieces, that being in that safe space at home is a challenge. So I think that's when you think about Stephanie and you asked about supports and things that are needed is I think we need to be really thoughtful about how we're gonna how we're gonna open things back up mm-hmm. and how we're gonna work to include people. Um, everyone. I mean, I think this goes for everyone. I see these right. articles for all of us. Like, how do we re-enter into, you know, places and all these crowds? But I think Absolutely. being really mindful of that mental health aspect. Right. Um, someone who maybe can't verbalize as well, I'm scared to go back to my my work setting and maybe just really being aware of that as right. we go through. Do you think there's any major lessons that we've learned um, from this experience um, with the pandemic? Um, are there any things that stand out to you that um, you don't, you don't want to kind of get lost um, as we go back and <laughs> open up? Yeah, right. Yeah. And so I think there's, there's a few things that I think for me personally stand out. Um, one of them is telehealth. And I think that hopefully for years people had recognized that there it was so much potential but insurance companies weren't paying for it which meant that people just couldn't feasibly do it and i'm hoping and i know there's a lot of work and advocacy being done to really help with that because i think that has so many ways of breaking down barriers we spend so much time talking about um, folks that are in in Ohio, we have lots of rural areas where there is there's not only not DD experts, there's no mental health experts at all. It's a desert of all, and so um, these we there's like mental health provider shortage areas that we have in the state. And so using telehealth is such a great way to reduce those barriers for adults and anyone that transportation aspect. And so I think telehealth has some really great great. Um, we used to do it. But I think the other piece of that is I think we realize that sometimes telehealth and that technology leaves some people behind. And so I think hopefully that's the other lesson that we learned. I know we did some focus groups with adults with ID and we were asking about just different aspects of mental health, but we were doing it in the midst of the lockdown, virtual focus groups, of course, and they were sharing their different experiences with therapists. Some of them had very favorable experiences, some of them because of the needs they needed related to adaptive technology or not being able to have access to high-speed internet, they didn't feel like they were able to access their treatment during that period. And so I think there's there's a lot we can do, but I also think hopefully we've learned we need to do some educating of providers to make sure they're doing it in a way that's inclusive of everyone. Right, right. So it, you know, we had had a question um, that I guess was trying to get at, like, how would you describe the, the state of the evidence around intervening with adults with disabilities um, and supporting their mental health needs? Like, is there an evidence base? Are we sort of at like a practice informed? Um, 
should that stop us from moving forward? <laughs> so we, um, the other thing in addition to the focus groups, I did some systematic reviews where we looked at the state of the literature and really tried to score the quality of it. Um, and so I can talk a little bit about that. I feel like my frame keeps like shifting into what I think about that. Um, huh, okay. So I, the okay. problem, so when I first started and proposed my little slice of the RRTC, it was that I wanted to get treatment guidelines. I wanted treatment guidelines for adults with ID with mental health concerns. The American Psychological Association has treatment guide, guidelines for disabilities, but it's all disabilities. That's the only one they have. Um, and so the goal was to pull out because there was a review done like in 2003 with the thoughts that CBT is a promising practice for um, adults with ID. And so we went and looked at the lit and there have been like three or four randomized controlled trials in other countries. There's only been one in the US that have said that it's effective. Yeah. But when you look at it, the samples are really diverse and they're not great. They're not characterized that well. Some of the there's treatment manuals available, which is great. But when we look at what like your traditional like psychology requirements for treatment guidelines, we don't meet any of those like checkboxes. And so the first article that I wrote was basically like, hey, DD World, where and I first draft, I should say, was, hey, DD World, clean it up. We need to get these like really well-powered trials to get things done. Well, then I started doing these focus groups and then I started reading this lit more. And there are so many barriers to being able to do those highly powered effectiveness trials that you understand why things get messy because you have pragmatists that just want to show that it works and some of those pieces. And it's this, I feel like it's this double-edged sword because when you look at the lit, there have been like hundreds and hundreds of studies that have been done, but a lot of them have been more like, well, we just need to do the work and whatever we, we whatever we have, we have. Right. But because we haven't ever like talked the language that like those clinical trialists want, it's like the ID world never kind of got elevated to that. Like, okay, CBT and all of these things should be like considered evidence-based practices. When we did our focus groups with clinicians, the one clinician even said, she's like, you know, sometimes I get worried. The insurance companies are gonna tell me they're not gonna cover something if they wow. like push back just mm -hmm. because they don't, we don't have that high level of clinical trials that like the general population has because people mm -hmm. with ID were excluded from those studies. Right, right, right. right. Wow. And so we, yeah, we had our, at our LEND graduation, um, our speaker was the um, executive director of this New Jersey Office of Resilience. And so he talked about the need to do just that, to stop waiting for the evidence base, but to just start doing the work um, because, you know, there's a, this urgent need. Um, and so I think, I think that's one of those places where the research standards and the real life standards um, are not always one and the same. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it really does make it, make it hard. So I am looking at the time. 
Um, and know that our, our time together is coming to a close. And so um, I'm gonna pose the, the final question, which is the, the final question we pose in all episodes of BogsCast. Um, and that's to ask you, um, what question didn't we ask you that you wished we had? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I wish you'd asked a little bit about, we just finished some focus groups for adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities and really asking about what they think of mental health treatment and oh, what wow. things helped helped them. Um, there was, we did some with clinicians as well, but the um, adults with ID, were, they were my favorite groups. Um, just because we got to hear from them all of the different things that they took from therapy. Um, and I think one of the biggest things, and we kind of touched on it a little bit, is that empowerment aspect. We heard so much from folks with ID that those successful therapeutic relationships that they had were when the therapist had empowered them to you know, provide consent to, to the treatment, to give permission for their family members or support people to be involved. Their um, therapist helped them to, uh, one woman said, they gave me the words to say what I wanted to say. And so it's really wow. that like empowerment piece, which yeah, which was just so cool. You know, they talked about, they helped with my symptoms and they gave me, and they gave me somebody to talk to. But I think that was the part that we didn't expect. And we heard that from the therapist too, independently, how important it is to those DD therapists to have that empowerment piece. And so I think that's, that's, that spoke to me just because I think it's it's so important with the mental health is how how do we empower people with ID to promote their own mental health to have the right to say that things are not promoting their mental health we heard that too there are lots of things in the environment that are not promoting the mental health so how can we help to give them those voices and to really help them ask for help a lot of times we know right now that people who are getting treatment for mental health are referred from somebody else with ID. They're unlike, you know, you or I, if we thought we needed help, often there's self-referrals or someone will go to a physician and ask. Whereas in this case, very rarely is it something where we've empowered adults with ID to just ask for help or to be able to feel comfortable asking for that help. That's so powerful. That's so powerful. Um, so Dr. Andrea Whitworth, thank you so much for being with us, for um, thinking through some of these really complex issues with us, and for all that you um, are doing to support children and adults um, around their mental health needs. Yes, thank you. Very, very, very important work that you're doing. And, um, you know, thank, like Carrie said, thank you so much for for the work and for the time that you've spent with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was a great conversation. So thank you for listening to this episode of BogsCast, a podcast by the Boggs Center on Developmental Disabilities. A full transcript of this episode can be found at thebogcenter.podbean.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite streaming service to stay up to date with the newest episodes. To learn more about the Boggs Center, visit our website at rwjms.rutgers, 
edu backslash bog center and follow us on facebook at the bog center on developmental disabilities all one word with no spaces <laughs>